I'm George Comedy, and you're listening to First Watch. Today's episode is the third from our series recorded live at RSA 2022. Today, I'm talking with Russell Eubanks, cybersecurity veteran. From his days as CISO of the Federal Reserve in Atlanta, Russell has gone on to become a SANS instructor and founded Security Ever After, a virtual CISO consultancy. Our conversation touches on his origins from factory floor worker to CISO and how to cultivate the next generation of very much needed cybersecurity talent. It was an absolute pleasure to meet Russell in person and learn from his years of experience. Let's get into it. Russell Eubanks, welcome to the First Watch podcast. It's amazing to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, it is a a thrill. I think I told you on the way up, I'm trying to tick off the number of clubhouse people that I get to meet in real life, and RSA is a great place to finally do that. It is. I saw the lineup of speakers. I'm like, I want to hear them, and they're going to be an amazing uh, guest, and so I'm just really excited to be a part. Awesome. Well, thank you. Um, So I, I wanted to start... Uh, on the subject of education. Um, So here at Safeguard Cyber, we've joined with uh, 25 other entities and Night Dragon Security um, here at RSA announcing uh, the goal of fundraising a $1 million scholarship to provide Bay Area Community College students with coursework, um, grants for certifications that they may need, everything to get the next generation of talent into the workforce. Um, as Dave DeWalt uh, mentioned last night, you know, the fact that the average cybersecurity breach costs around $6.5 million, juxtaposed with the idea that they went around and they talked to community colleges and it only costs a million dollars to get all those uh, kids up and running, it seems a no-brainer in terms of the calculation. So I know community college played a strong role in, in your learning, so I hope we could start with that part of your journey. Happy to. And I'll go back another step. Back in 1996, my wife and I got married and I was working in a factory, literally steel-toed shoes, Mm -hmm. protective equipment, night shift, no air conditioner, very dangerous conditions. And I said to myself, self, I don't think I want to do this the rest of my life. Nothing wrong with it. I worked hard to get that job. But I had a memory. I thought, wait a second. When I did my employee orientation, they said something about tuition reimbursement. Mm-hmm. So I literally went in early. So my shift was 4.30 in the afternoon until 3 in the morning. Went in early. Ironically, someone I graduated high school with had graduated college. She's in charge of HR at the factory that I worked at. And I said, hey, Brittany, um, great to see you. Uh, and didn't you say something about tuition reimbursement? Are, are you saying that you will pay for my school if I go to school? I don't mm-hmm. my time. I don't cut me time. She said, yeah, yeah. I'd be happy to do that. And what was what struck me was she said, you go get your you go pay for your school, Chattanooga State Technical Community College in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where we're from, mm-hmm. to your school. And she said, and we'll figure out, we've never had anyone from the plant who's a worker or factory worker to go do this. So while you go get your, pay your bill, we're going to figure out how to pay you back. Oh, wow. They literally had no one who would take advantage of that benefit. I'm like, whoa, did I do something wrong? Is something going here? But it, it really changed the trajectory of my career by having that opportunity to go to graduate from a community college. Well, that's, that's excellent. I mean, that's a, well, I think we'll come back to that, but certainly um, when you think about the debate that rages about, um, you know, do entry level SOC analysts really require the certifications that are often posted? We'll, We'll come back to that, but I think it was clear that the company either 
needs to lean in into the messaging about tuition reimbursement um, and or there's an interesting story there I think about um, the conception of who they thought was the target audience. Like was it uh, middle management when they were thinking about getting MBAs versus the factory worker going back? So from that starting point and going back to community college, what was the, um, where was the turn into either IT or into, into security of all the th many things you could have studied? Yeah, so I decided I didn't want to do um, work in a factory. I remember back in high school, a long, long time ago in a land far away, <laughs> it was a computer class, an elective class. It was an Apple II-E. Like, in my mind, I'm like, uh -huh. in my classroom, I'm like, ooh, what's this thing? Am I going to break it? And I wrote a little silly little programs that the teacher had us write. I thought, this is kind of cool. I never equated loving my job. I thought, I, the family I was growing up mm -hmm. in, people I was around, you're supposed to hate your job, and your boss is out to get you, and it's just a <laughs> terrible thing. I, I didn't know any better. I thought I had to hate my job, so I never thought about, ooh, as much as I liked playing on the Apple IIe mm -hmm. in high school in the late 80s, then I could actually like what I do. Uh, and that, that turning point of, I think I'd like to do that, but I never thought I could actually, or I was even supposed to, or even allowed to like my job. And so mm -hmm. when I started to have that reframing of, uh, rewiring of my mindset, I thought, ooh, what would it look like if I didn't hate my boss? What if I wasn't out to, <laughs> you know, do the, and, and I just didn't know any better, but it's just like blinders came off. I thought, ooh, I can lean in, I can enjoy, and it's been one of the best decisions I ever made. That's awesome. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, so so I want to uh, pivot a little bit. So we've been looking back. I want to look forward. Yep. Um, you work with the Sands Institute. Yes. Um, so curious to know from that vantage point if you're seeing any trends in what uh, students are availing themselves. Like what are the what are the topics or the the, the core ideas that have shifted. Um, with the industry, just as a bellwether of, of you know where that the next generation is headed. Sure. So I've been privileged to teach with Sands the last thirteen years. It was a lot, really hard. I call it the world's longest job interview. <laughs> I was interviewing for five, six, seven years, and then finally became official and grateful for that. But in the classes I teach are on the critical security controls, how to apply them, on strategic planning, how to. I think the closest thing they have into how to be a CISO class. Uh -huh. And then last year, Lance Spitzer and I co-wrote a class on security culture. Interesting. And so this idea of what am I seeing? I'm seeing people that are either thrust into a job, security leadership job, maybe their first CISO job, maybe their first manager job or SOC uh, leader job. Mm -hmm. And they're, the technical skills that got them successful are not the same skills they need to be successful in their new roles and responsibility of leading people that do the things that they may have done the previous uh, year mm -hmm. themselves. So this a conversation around still admire the technical things and the blinky light things and the things we'll see at the RSA show, all the vendors mm -hmm. doing the vendor things, and, and there's nothing wrong with it. But how can I be aware of and be equipped to do things that only I, as a leader, can do has been the conversations of here's the things to think about. Here's how to align your program to the mission of your company, not because there's an APT or mm -hmm. a CSF or 853, all the things that are our vernacular in our vocabulary. The business areas, they're not going to figure that out. What are things that only leaders can do? Lead, motivate, inspire, cast vision for a better future. So just all the things that are not normal, 
uh, to cyber leaders, and so we want to have that as a part of equipping them to do just that. So that's what we're seeing. A lot of folks who are new to the role, thrust mm-hmm. into the role. You know, some say you know, average CISO ten years, one to three years. You know, there's churn. Yeah, I imagine we'll see a lot of announcements even uh, this week of people moving to different places. Mm-hmm. So there's that vacancy. There's that opportunity for someone to find themselves in the chair and oh, what do I do? How do I do that? So that's what we see a lot of folks coming through. Okay, now what? Now how do I do that? Yeah, it goes from hands on the keys to managing the hands on the keys. That's it. Yeah. Getting things done through others, 100%. Yeah. Or oh, in the reverse, I think this is the perennial issue is uh, you are of two minds. Here's the first. Okay, you now learn how to manage those people with their hands on the keys and then now turn over here and translate what they're doing as it, it, to the growth part of the the business that has no idea or may not even care what the technical risk management is just can i do x y and z that will drive growth in what appears to be a, an oncoming recession or how will we remain resilient you know from a business standpoint rather than simply a cyber standpoint that's so true and as your comments it made me mindful of some really good advice that i got when i became svp cio at the federal reserve bank of atlanta mm-hmm. my last and maybe last ever full-time uh, position uh, I, someone said you know russell to be successful you have to be able to be bilingual and so oh, I said yeah. to myself, okay, bilingual, Spanish, French, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, Dutch. Well, yeah. No, no, no. I have to be able to speak tech and cyber and all mm-hmm. those things I've learned to do, been privileged to do for many, many years. And I have to speak the language of business. See, the CFO is not going to learn cyber. They're yeah. not, they, don't know, they don't even want to know what an APT is. Yeah. And they shouldn't. They're worried with how to run the business and operate, et cetera. I have to, we have to, as cyber leaders, speak the language of business. Like, what's the mission of the company? What's the balance sheet look like? Mm-hmm. The projects and initiatives that I want to propose for them to invest in, typically in the form of a business case, if the company, does the company have enough money to pay for it? If I want to come in with a $10 million request and last year the company lost $10 million, yes. you know, you, there's places you can go. There's the people you can ask to see, hey, could the company even afford this if they mm-hmm. wanted to, and to position you and your team uh, to be successful um, for that. And so just understanding that language, being bilingual, mm-hmm. speaking the language of business, and on a dime, being able to still communicate technical things with those that you're privileged to lead is a key skill. And actually, I see there's a big deficit for a lot of leaders who are not able to do that. I see it hold them back. In the past, it held me back mm-hmm. by not being able to speak that second language. Or, or even if that project is germane to the direction of the company, right? You could see a gap in the security stack. And from the technical standpoint, you're like, that's something that needs to be addressed. Um, but the, you know, somewhere at a board level meeting, the higher priority is growth in, let's say, Latin America. And your project is focused on securing infrastructure in North, you know, I mean, there's just, you're going to go in and it's going to look like you weren't paying attention, you know, to where the company is looking for revenue versus anyway. Um, So that's, that is a really good point. And I think we're focused on the leaders here. I want to dial a little bit further back or maybe to belabor analogy earlier in the kill chain um given what you've learned given your experience and given this deficit that you've pointed out um where would you point 
like today's college students, right? So when I graduated college, there was no cybersecurity curriculum. And now, you know, that's a potential major. Um, I think I've heard both sides of the debate that, yes, you need more of that because we need to make up a talent shortage. I've also heard, you know, less important is the academic skills than the, the practical skills. So for today's students who may be interested or listening, you know, is it internships? Is it uh, practicums? Is it real world training? Does everyone need to try their hand at pen testing? Like, where do you, where do you think are some gaps in, in where would you advise students? Yeah, definitely with internships. When I was at Chattanooga State Technical Community College, they had a job placement. Kind of mm-hmm. like internships before that was a word or before that was a thing. Uh-huh. They knew what I wanted to do, and they knew I didn't have the ability to go get a tech job at mm-hmm. a cool place, but they did afford me the opportunity to go in to a company and try things out in a basic level programming work uh, to help me be exposed to an opportunity that I was not capable of finding myself. Mm-hmm. So looking for internships, job shadowing, if you know friends, uh, yeah. family, others who work in the industry, hey, can I sign some papers to not steal anything? And yeah. <laughs> hang out with you for a couple of weeks just to see what's it like in the day in the life. Maybe just an afternoon to be exposed to, here's what normal is. I mean, you go to meetings, you have to talk to people, you have to pound on your keyboard, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a pen test. Maybe you do a ride-along for a pen test. You actually spend some time, no money, but spend some time just watching and saying, is that something... I still see myself interested in. Maybe they'll say, oh, that's, I want to do more. I want to go to school. I want to take a training. I want to go get involved in the community, in the security community some way to further my exposure to that. Or maybe, you know what, if they say, you know what, that's not for me. I watched a movie. There's this hacker movie. Yeah. and Maybe there's this red pill, blue pill thing. And it seems really cool. But, you know, after I sat with someone who did that for a living, it's just not me. And maybe the clarity is tapping out to say, maybe it's not me. So I think mm-hmm. that, that idea that something that you can do, that you can uh, hopefully easily do or find someone in your local area, a friend, family member, neighbor, uh, LinkedIn connection, someone you know, that's mm-hmm. been on these podcasts before can say, hey, I'm interested. I'm in this area. Do you know someone who can consider letting me just hang out with them uh, for a little while to just see, is that something I still want to pursue? And then it's a chance for the company, the person at the company, to kind of watch that person. Do they behave themselves? Do they ask good questions? Mm-hmm. they seem they have the not the skills to do a pen test, but maybe the aptitude of how to think and how to ask questions and how to problem solve while they're watching and asking questions in a real live engagement? I think that can help both. Uh, if you believe the Internet is says there's over a million unfilled cyber jobs. Is it right or wrong? I don't know, but it's on the internet, so it it could be true. I think that there's got to be ways to find people. Think of it like a a funnel, a sales Mm -hmm. and marketing funnel that's happening at the Moscone Center right now, bringing people in. Uh, There was one uh, vendor that has a F1 car. I'm like, wow. That's right. Yeah, yeah, I saw that today. Uh, And what did I do? I'm like, oh, look at that. I I can't touch it. They'd like put me in jail if I touch it, but I'm like, right there, I can like breathe on it, and Mm -hmm. and there it is. And you just see that stuff on TV. It drew me in. What are some things that we can do to draw people in to say, hey, consider. Uh, here's, a, here's what this looks like. Here's a day in the life. Here's opportunities through internships and job sharing, asking your neighbor. I mean, just anything to let someone get a glimpse and then let them make a choice if they're interested to continue on. What are more opportunities in that proverbial funnel to get them closer and more likely to participate in the cyber workforce? Yeah, that, that strikes me as... There's something there that, you know, I think we think about 
the cyber skill shortage in terms of you know enterprises uh, they need SOC analysts they need threat hunters um, but e e we're here at RSA so even the the vendor side like maybe you don't want to code or you want to pen test but maybe you have the skills to be a product manager of a new you know i mean it takes you know both sides of that ecosystem um but that is that is a good point yes it's it's easy to abstract a lot of these jobs until you do it and also to your point even if you are an excellent pen tester or a threat hunter that's not your whole day you you do have to turn and then like present your findings or communicate them to other parts of a team and then like i found this threat therefore we need to you know you draw a conclusion you know all those skills that are hard to mimic in a university environment exactly when, when your job is at school to get an a on your program you're going to focus on that when the and so you'll do that all your work is designed towards getting an a on that program but you're right when you when you have a program that does whatever it does then you got to tell somebody about it who's not a programmer, who's mm -hmm. never going to learn that language, but to take that and say, here's what that means. Here's the so what. Here's what that means to our business because we've not patched our Windows servers yes. in the last year. Mm -hmm. you got to know it's important. you got to know there's Windows servers. You have to realize how those servers contribute to the business. And, and you, you won't be able to tell that story, but you can watch and model and mm -hmm. kind of develop that vocabulary so that you can communicate to business leaders to make a decision. Mm -hmm. Hey, should we patch our Windows servers in that case? Yes, perfect. Um, okay, so this year the theme uh, is transform at RSA. So I'm going to ask everyone that I talked to today. But um, what have you seen? You know, in the last two years, this is our first time being back in person. Um, how security operations are transforming, or how they have changed? Uh, and then I have a follow up question after that. But what 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 have you seen over the last two years? Because you know. It could be argued in 2019, everyone was talking, well, not 2019, but even before that, digital transformation this, we're on a transformation roadmap. And then 2020 was just that punch in the face that kind of forced everyone to transform, regardless of whether they had a, a roadmap or a plan. As of March 13th, 2020, you were beginning your transformation. So how, how has that impacted uh, security operations? Yeah, I think what's important there is you think about what's happened, and it's a silly question, I mean, what's happened since the last time we were here mm -hmm. like everything's happened yes there's been wars pandemics all kinds of terrible ter I mean, everyone's lost something some people lost mm -hmm. way more and it's not just here but like the whole world went through hurt Ringer. after hurt after hurt and you think about what's what's on the mind what's the experience been for say a sock analyst mm -hmm. who's got a family whose kids are now taking kindergarten over Zoom. Today at lunch, I had a lunch with someone who's had three kids, and those three kids had to take Zoom school. Mm -hmm. They themselves, the husband and wife, were working on their own Zoom to do their business, and so it's like all of a sudden they're thrust into being a teacher mm -hmm. or a therapist or a physician. Or, at the same time. Yes, you have to be your job and yes. whatever else at the same time. And you got to pay the bills, and you mm -hmm. got to stay healthy, and just, just so many things that now that proverbial sock analyst has to have on their mind. And you think, well, how long is it? Two and a half years. And then how much longer is it going to... What does that look like? And so I think you, the dynamics of when we all, as the world, generally went and worked from home, mm -hmm. were we really working from home? Or... Were we living at work? Yeah, I felt like I was living at work. <laughs> we were living at work. And so when we have that vocabulary, we have that language, it's like, you know what? 
uh, and not minimizing. I could never say there'll be books and movies about what all of us went through. But you got to think about that, that impact. So what's the impact of someone who, I would never want to sleep in my office. I have in the past, right. and I don't want to do it again. And maybe you have in the past, maybe your listeners have in the past, but you don't do it again. It's like, ugh, been there, done that, I never want to do that again. But when you do that over and over and over again, it was like, wait a second, what's the impact? The thing I see now is when companies are saying come back to work or not, mm. and just all these things, the thing that I'm worried about right now is the burnout. Yeah. People who've been working all on. I mean, you can't go to the movies. You can't go to the park. You can't go out to dinner. What are you going to do? You're going to sit and bang on your keyboard while you're trying to teach your kids kindergarten, while you're trying to pay your mortgage or your rent, and Mm -hmm. hope what's going to happen to the world doesn't happen to you and your family. All these stressors. I think it's a tension of, as we're wanting to bring more people in, I wonder if if what we've been through is pushing people away that says, you know what, I don't want to live that way. My lifestyle, I love my family. I love my pets. I love, I've never met my neighbors. And now mm-hmm. I talk to my neighbors all the time because what else are you going to do when you can't go and do? People are making choices of what do I do? And I wonder the burnout, the, the word is kind of getting to is this idea of how has that impacted us? I see a lot of stress. I see a lot on the faces this yeah. week and on the Zooms before this week, The just the the pain, the help me, the, the nonverbal communications that are there around what we've all been through, especially us in cyber. And it's also, we can't afford the burnout, right? Yeah. As we said, we already have a gap, so you yes. can't, you can't net lose more than ever coming on board. Yeah. I, I take it also as, um, I had a, f- a friend, uh, not in cybersecurity, you know, the company, had to lay off a lot of people and she basically took on the responsibility of an entire department and that was survival mode right like get through these two years so it's finally beginning to turn around um she moved into another department effectively got a a promotion the pay rise didn't come with it and she had to make that argument like Look, for two years, I was willing to grind to help this company see the other side. So I think not just to your point about burnout, but to your point about if people have helped their companies get through these times, they also need to be able to see a logical progression. Like, what what do I get in exchange for living at work for, for two years? I and it's that's... a question that if the, the culture that goes to the culture of the company. What's the culture of the company? What's the awareness of senior leaders, of your boss, your manager, your supervisor, your peer, uh, to recognize that? Because the truth is, your boss's boss's boss, they live through the same thing. Mm-hmm. Everybody in the world lives through the same thing. But do, does it get recognized? Mm-hmm. Is there, I mean, thank you. Like, seriously, thanks for working, for, thanks for living <laughs> at work for the last couple of years and you letting your internet be for work and your internet mm-hmm. be for your family and your kids. And I'm glad you're healthy and you made it through. And acknowledging that, I think, could be a big deal. Versus you may have heard some messages we may have heard in tech yeah. companies last year of you come back to work or you lose your job. Yeah, that seems it's, it's, a it low seems, EQ. <laughs> it seems a very, very low EQ. Now, does, does, the, does that organization perhaps need? need that to do what they're wanting to do maybe their success depends on that but we forgot about the human factor that Mm -hmm. person who sacrificed and gave and did and all the verbs in the name of keeping the company literally alive and many companies they just don't exist anymore yeah they're because of those reasons how can that be acknowledged and what's appropriate to keep the business going and be able to recognize to honor to show gratitude to people that gave 
a whole lot these last couple of years. Well, I think that goes to some part of my next question about transformation, which is how did the last two years transform the role of the CISO? Now, I, I think there's a kernel there of you went just not from security leader, but you you may have gone to to a part time therapist or listener or you know like yeah. it, it. You you said there's a there's a business language. You may have to make them trilingual because there may be you know just speaking to your team members in a different way and and holding space where before you'd say okay everybody have a meeting come to this office and for hours we'll drone on about a topic because that's how normal it is mm-hmm. now it's you're right okay what what's needed here in this moment mm-hmm. maybe the most important thing is to cancel that meeting yeah, or and like no meeting Fridays or, or whatever. No meeting Fridays. Uh, there's some folks I know who take off Wednesday, like all Wednesday. They they design their days, and so during the middle of the week, they just don't work. Mm-hmm. They do their things. They just don't do anything work-wise on that day to just recover and recoup. Maybe it's at the start of the meeting. Hey, you know, sincerely, I mean, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. When I was a CISO at the Fed, there was a gentleman, he came up to me, and he would. it took me several times hearing this, but he would look at me and say, Russell, how are you doing? And you'd be like, and yeah, thought, I'm, fine. I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, and it was, but then like eight or nine more times, I thought, wait a minute, he's he sees in me what I don't see in myself, stress, maybe I'm late, maybe I've missed a deadline, I mean, all mm-hmm. those things were probably true, but then he, he noticed that enough to say, how are you doing? He didn't say, how's your projects, how's the board, are they happy when you brief them on cyber? Uh-huh. How are you doing? I think that modeling after a dear friend of checking on, on purpose, not with an agenda, not Mm -hmm. with something to catch someone doing something wrong, but to sincerely look across the table or look across the Zoom and say, how are you doing? And it's hard for us as security people. We have to close our Mm -hmm. mouth and Mm -hmm. open our ears and await whatever the response is and be prepared with the emotional intelligence to respond with a meaningful and thoughtful comment to whatever they give at us that we have no idea what they're going to say. Yeah. I, I mean, I'll say personally, it felt, um, it took me a long time to be able to answer that question because I, I would sort of, the first phase was a perfunctory, like, yeah, I'm all right. Right. And then the second phase was kind of guilt if I did complain because you know, there's a pandemic and millions are dying and my family was in relative health despite, you know, living at work. But yeah, you just have to give people the space to be comfortable to be like, yeah, it's really stressful because I'm in this meeting, but the dishwasher is broken and it's like, I got to go up there and wash these dishes, but I got to do it while in this, me-. you know, I don't know. There's a thousand different things that can go wrong at home. Yeah. And I'm on camera. I mean, I've never, I mean, who would want to turn on a camera right. and show your home? It's yeah. like, it, like two years ago, Lig would say, no, the, the risk is too great. Now it's like, oh, your camera's not on. You're not paying attention. You're out cutting the grass yes. or you're, yeah. you're not, you, you're not loyal to the company. And I think this, this dynamic recognizing the changes have happened. And then perhaps, as you said, as we're getting to a place where, you know, coming out of, and we, we would certainly want and need mm-hmm. and desire that. What are some things that we learned along the way that we can do to make the future better because of going through just a terrible, terrible thing for far, far too long. Are there some nuggets? Are there some, how are you doing moments that we can build in, in on purpose in our uh, new way of working? Yeah. We're going to have to expand this podcast to HR because it'll be a (laughs) missed opportunity if we we don't take those learnings. All right. So I want to end with something of like a, a hot take. 
Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, what do I want to say here, controversial topics in security. So I've proposed a few to some other guests, but mine for you, because I think we briefly intimated it here, is when we think about the talent shortage, right, the number has changed, but regardless, it's generally agreed that there are more positions than there are applicants. Is the talent shortage in cybersecurity real or one of our own devising? Both. It, it is yes and. And I think what we talked about earlier about having that funnel of inviting people who mm-hmm. may be considering going to community college to consider you know, just so many diverse things we can do in cyber. It's just like endless, the things we could do. Yeah. What are some other people who don't work in cyber? but maybe they're an expert in their field. You mentioned HR. Mm -hmm. The HR recruiter that recruited me to join the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta in 2015. Turns out he's an amazing communicator. Mm-hmm. People in cyber, they're terrible communicators. <laughs> and, and I say that as someone who, for a long time, I was a terrible communicator, too. He was looking to leave the company. And I'm like, you're, Herb, you're amazing. I, every, you've like participated in you know, filling this bank full of great people, and you're about to leave. What a tragedy that would be. Hey, I know. Herb, let's go to lunch every month. My treat will go and talk about, is there something I can do to help? And he's like, well, you know, Russell, I'm kind of interested in cyber, but I don't have a degree. I don't have a certification. Mm-hmm. Not, no, no community college or anything at all. And, of course, his boss is in HR, wanted to do HR things, not cyber things, because he's not a cyber person. So I said, well, what would it look like if we had some conversations? investing in you here's some free resources here's some exposure to things mm-hmm. that we did come hang out with our department as much as you want and let's do it on purpose so that you can see mm, do i really like this or i just like people that do cyber things because they say acronyms and talk right. fast sometimes what happened was he did the work he didn't just have information but he had application like he went and did things mm-hmm. with recommendations from me and other people and lo and behold he's now a member of the cybersecurity team that I was privileged to lead there. Turns out he's an amazing communicator. We sent him to school. He learned mm-hmm. things about NIST 853 and all the acronyms and the CSFs and all the things, while at the same time, he was showing a team of compliance professionals how to do something terribly awkward, like stand up, walk away from your computer, and greet someone in person. <laughs> right. Hi, I'm on the security team, and Mr. or Miss person in charge of something really important. I want to communicate some things to you. And, and it was just amazing. They, it was a symbiotic relationship. They both won. The company didn't lose Herb. Herb is still there. He'll probably be running the whole show one day. He's just that good of a communicator, and, and he's a student of cyber. So as an example, and there are many more examples there, this idea of where are there people that have gifts, and they're experts in other areas, maybe law enforcement, maybe in IT, mm-hmm. help desk, maybe HR recruiters who they can take that and, and transport that skill to benefit your team. Advice I was given a long time ago from a, a executive in HR, hire character and train skills. Yeah. Herb's character says he's a man of his word, a man of integrity. He's eager and wants to learn stuff, but nobody's given him a hand to make a custom path for him to position him for consideration. He nailed it. He got. The, he won the job fair and square because of the work he did on his own through our advice and guidance. The company would have lost, the team would have lost, and cybersecurity would have not had a Herb if there hadn't been a conversation around what would it look like to expose people like Herb and lots of other people just like
like him to our field. And I think it's an opportunity to, again, to widen that funnel, cast a net that says, you know, until we have to turn people away in cyber, we've got to be innovative. We have to be creative in ways with community colleges, people that work in a factory, and HR recruiters who are about to leave uh, their job. Yeah, I think that points to a lot of things. That's obviously the, the EQ and the empathy intention, but I also think it speaks to something that I, I've gotten interested in is the diversity of talent, right? Like there is no one type of cybersecurity professional. Um, I remember a CISO saying that their best SOC analyst ended up being somebody who was a history scholar because that person has been trained to pay attention to very minute details and recognize patterns across essentially vast data sets, which is history. But yeah, I think there's a template there that maybe we don't pay attention to, which is, it's a 50 year old template at this point, it's the, the CIA, right? The CIA, there's no one spy analyst class that you take. They go and they find people who are linguists, they find people who are law enforcement, they find people who have PhDs in classics because they have attention to detail. There are all sorts of things that, uh, that can apply. It's just, you know, engendering that interest or giving them that path. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, Russell, this has been great. I'm glad that we finally got to, to meet in person. Thank you so much for lending your time. I know you're very busy, as we all are here in San Francisco. Absolutely my pleasure. I've been a highlight of my day, and I love conversations like this that hopefully can inspire your audience uh, to consider some new ways to solve uh, problems that we face every single day in cyber. It's just been an absolute pleasure, so thank you very much. Absolutely. And that's it for First Watch today. A big thanks to my special guest, Russell Eubanks. First Watch is a production of Safeguard Cyber. It's edited by Kai Crogetti with original music by Matias Cephaletti. Subscribe to First Watch wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. And until next time, stay safe, stay strong.